Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the June 27th QPSC. Um, our standard convention is to do roll call and then move into a uh, closed session. We currently do not have a quorum. Uh, we can still open up with roll call, and then I'm going to make a little bit of an audible. We'll move directly into item uh, D, which is the uh, medical staff reports, since that, since that is a non-actual item, if that's acceptable to everyone. We'll open up for roll call, please. Trustee Banerjee is not here. Trustee Bouquet? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Here. And Trustee Jensen is not here. We do not have a quorum. Okay. With that, um, uh, thank you uh, for the indulgence. Uh, we'll go to item D, the medical staff reports. Um, as I say, dealer's choice. Who would like to go first? I'll start. Okay. Uh, uh, and, uh, Welcome, okay. Dr. Marzu. <laughs> Uh, right, essentially, we uh, uh, credential and privileged uh, various uh, uh, individuals, uh, medical staff, uh, and we also uh, have developed uh, forms uh, for uh, applications for appointment and reappointment of uh, the advanced practice practitioners to be uh, used in, in the emergency room, which were all uh, approved uh, so that uh, allied uh, advanced practice practitioners, such as nurse practitioners and PAs can, uh, can start uh, helping out in, the, in our emergency room. Uh, there were no uh, uh, services or contracting. Uh, in terms of, of uh, of an issue which uh, arose, uh, I think, since the uh, last meeting, we had a, a CMS uh, uh, complaint validation survey, uh, which took uh, a substantial portion of, uh, of time. Uh, survey for a complaint, and uh, uh, from that, we uh, were able to formulate. Although we haven't uh, received the official report, we were able to formulate an action plan. Uh, dealing with uh, issues such as patient rights, uh, use of psychoactive medications, uh, and uh, restraints. Uh, so that, as well as informed consent. Uh, this we've uh, developed a module uh, so that the medical staff, uh, in addition to obviously the rest of the hospital, the medical staff uh, will be educated on uh, those issues uh, to, uh, as an action plan to what the CMS had, uh, had uh, found. Uh, other issues uh, are, we noted, we were told uh, that uh, that due to the budget constraints uh, that we will be uh, having our uh, Alameda primary care clinic uh, closed, uh, but we were uh, assured of uh, primary access or discharge uh, to have access within the system. And uh, in addition to that, uh, we, Dr. Hill, uh, our cardiologist, uh, is uh, uh, retiring end of June, and uh, we have a new cardiologist that's uh, ready to go in uh, uh, 1st of July, whom uh, the medical staff has met. And so we'll continue the cardiology services, although there's still uh, issues about having, uh, uh, if possible, uh, in-house 
the cardiologist uh, available on the weekends or not in-house to be to physically see uh, patients on the weekends. Uh, our, also, we had an extensive medical staff uh, policies and procedures were approved, uh, many of which, uh, uh, one particular one which was professionalism and conduct, which was actually uh, devised and worked on uh, uh, primarily uh, at Alameda, but uh, we worked to align our policies and procedures with the Alameda Health System medical staff. So they're going to be utilized. This particular one we worked extensively on uh, is going to be utilized by the entire system, uh, which focuses on folks peer professional peer review, as well as uh, as well as uh, 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 dealing with professionalism and conduct in the entire system for of the medical staff. And I would. Uh, uh, Finally, I mean, and obviously we're on track uh, with Sapphire, and uh, we're also uh, uh, coordinating and meeting weekly uh, for our system transfers at Alameda Hospital. And I would like to just uh, 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 give a word of uh, praise uh, primarily to Satira and uh, her medical staff and her coordinators and uh, uh, during this, uh, she's been able to juggle so many things in terms of, of the reappointments or the appointments uh, within the new medical staff uh, for, of Highland and, uh, and San Leandro, and at the same time have uh, sufficient uh, time staff for our, our meetings. So I know she, she's... Uh, uh, her staff has done a remarkable job. Just want to praise that. And that's it. Thank you for your report, Dr. Marzouk. Uh, trustees, questions? I'll make note that Trustee Banerjee has arrived, so we have achieved a quorum. I think we'll still continue to com complete out the Chief of Staff report so we don't break that. And I thought I saw Trustee Jensen. Uh, Trustee yeah. Jensen is here as well. Uh -huh. So we have four for four. Uh, trustees, any questions for Dr. Marzouk on the Alameda Hospital report? Not for me. Uh, Dr. Mazuk, I have a question. Talk to me about um, the closure of the pri Alameda Primary Care Clinic. How many patients, uh, when, when is the anticipated closure date? How many patients are going to be impacted? And what is our, do we have a remediation plan? And, and I'll say this actually kind of hit home with me yesterday when I was seeing a, a patient for the first time and I asked her where her primary care clinic was and she said Alameda Primary Care and over in, in Marina Village and I said it's my impression that that's going to be closing soon and she started crying because she didn't know about this and uh, and and um, she said I've been moved from clinic to clinic to clinic and it really it was an impactful moment for me while I was just meeting her for the first time yesterday. Well I, I mean I share your your concern we were just uh, we were just notified about this uh, at the last MEC. Okay. Uh, so, uh, obviously, there's a need uh, for, for uh, primary care, uh, particularly the patients that are uh, uninsured or have never had a primary care physician, 
to particularly with discharge planning from our, uh, from our uh, hospital uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, that some of the, the decisions and in terms of the number of patients uh, that are being seen currently and the justification. Uh, I know they have uh, specialty clinics at Alameda Island and uh, the ability to incorporate perhaps the, the primary care with the specialty clinics, uh, that's something that was raised at our MEC as well. Uh, and uh, I have to add, I have to, you have to ask uh, uh, Mr. Fonseca and Dr. Jamaluddin about the utilization, the financial aspect, etc. So I, I care about the clinical, I care about all of it, of sure. course. But Dr. J, can you comment on when this clinic will be closed and so how there, we're messaging these people in our plan to, there to, is a process, to repatriate them somewhere? Yeah, there is a process to this uh, HP is going to work with the regulatory office about that process of informing the patients, informing the payers, and reassigning the patients in primary care uh, in our system. So, and uh, we're going to ensure that there is a process at Alameda Hospital for discharged patients who have no access to primary care to get them primary care access in our system. Uh, so I assume you saw your patients in your clinic here at Highland. Yes. So uh, the same way she comes to you at Highland, she'll be able to come to a primary care physician at Highland. Do we know when this uh, Alameda primary care uh, will close? I think there is a 90-day uh, notification that has to go, so we're talking about like 90 days. 90 uh, days from today? Uh, from, from the time we make the announcement. Oh. So, so it is like about three months that it will close. Sorry. Let me, if I can speak a yes, little bit to this. Uh, so, so the reason the clinic closure is publicly uh, um, uh, known in terms of our sharing was because we had to share it publicly as a part of the draft budget of process. There's a still an extensive process for any of the uh, actions that were in the draft budget that will may or may not move forward. In this case, uh, uh, probably will ultimately move forward, uh, but there's still a process for actually working through the details of that, and then, as Dr. Jamaluddin is mentioning, uh, uh, that notification period, which then uh, starts the clock for when the actual closure will be. So uh, it's not known yet, uh, but we've discussed it publicly because we had to discuss it publicly as part of the budgeting process. But in terms of our internal processes, do we have a ballpark? Are we talking Christmas, or are we talking, or we don't know? We don't know. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. Trust the um, at our board meeting, the Alameda Healthcare District board meeting on Monday, this issue also came up, and um, I it came up uh, through Dr. Deutsch, who was concerned that because he had referred patients there, and he mentioned that other doctors at Alameda had looked at the clinic as a, as you said, as a place to refer patients who didn't have a primary care provider, and so um, Dr. Marzuk was at that meeting as well, and we. In Alameda, as you all know, most people know that the Alameda um, Healthcare District Board and Alameda community was very supportive and very uh, advocated strongly for the clinic to open. So um, it's unfortunate if it does close. I, I, I did have some questions that I wasn't able to ask the other night, though, um, with regard to the hours of the clinic, because I had been I had heard that the clinic was not open very often. Um, it wasn't a full-time clinic, so. 
if that's not, is it a, is it a nine to five full-time primary care clinic with, is there one provider there or two? There is one provider and, uh, you know, when this provider uh, had to go like on vacation or leave, uh, we, you know, we struggled to get coverage. So in those situations, there might have been some cut in the, in the hours, but in general, yes, this is how it has operated. So let me, and also to answer your earlier question, um, um, so this clinic is run through uh, AHP uh, because that was a way that we did, and I appreciate Trustee Jensen's comments. Uh, you'll recall we, we, um, we, with your support, put the clinic in place because there was a, a closure of the prior clinic and there's a need in the community. Uh, we've invested heavily in the clinic uh, uh, to uh, give it a chance for success and uh, have done that for well over a year now. The clinic volume at this point has gotten up to about 20 visits or so a month. Mm. A month. Uh, I, I heard. And so <laughs> I just want to make sure that's yeah, clear. Uh, it is not insignificant for any one patient, and we get that. And, and closure of the clinic, uh, from our perspective, would not be, uh, and the reason why we don't have a date for you now, is not a we're closed, good luck sort of situation. It is certainly that we, as a system, believe that we have an obligation to optimize all of our resources and we have other clinics uh, admittedly not on the island uh, uh, that uh, we can, can absorb actually absorb yeah, and, and refer our patients to um, uh, and it's just it's been incredibly challenging and a significant uh, 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 expense drain for the organization to retain the clinic and so it's a tough call in the midst of a lot of tough calls that we have to make uh, and, and we're still working through the details of it fully understood I understand. And I, I should to that, and sorry, continue, but I actually was at um, Eastmont yesterday, and there's, that's a, a space where there's access and parking, and it didn't seem, I was there during the middle of the day for an hour or two, and yeah. it seemed like there was, um, it, it, there was opportunities there, yeah. and it's not that far from Alameda, provided the bridges aren't up. Yeah. Plus, our access here actually is, uh, is quite good. It's probably the best it has ever been, and uh, at the, so so is it at Hayward. So we have access in our system. Now we have to keep in mind also the operation of these clinics does not include only seeing the patients. There is a whole uh, like envelope of support, like uh, you know medication management, uh, labs, uh, after hours. Uh, all of this is is very well established in our FQHC structure. And uh, it was really challenging to, to, to operate that clinic and, and, uh, and to, uh, to fund it as, as well. I mean, we respect the need of the community and we are going to do everything we, we can to serve the community. Uh, but uh, I, I, like yourself, I treat, I treat patients who are from Alameda Island and patients who got discharged from Alameda uh, hospital, and I was able to get them access in our primary care system. So, will they have um, some uh, ability to go to one of the others, whether it's Highland or Eastmont, or will they be assigned to a certain other clinic, and that will be their base? Well, uh, we we uh, it is our responsibility for every patient who is discharged from Alameda Hospital who does not have primary care access to assign them to their medical homes. Now, so if they are assigned, for example, to a medical home at CHCN, it is our care management responsibility to get them to their primary care. And if they want to change that assignment, we can connect to the alliance and get them in our system. Yeah. We have done this, you know, in the past, but we want them to be assigned and go to their medical homes. 
Yeah, if they're as if they're me Medi-Cal covered patients, they they have an ability to choose their medical home, whether it's within AHS or outside of AHS, and 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 we can help to facilitate that if they choose to go outside the system, and certainly if they stay with. To clarify, I was not questioning the cost-benefit analysis. I'm just questioning how we operationalize the change. Yeah, no, I, I understood that. I appreciate okay. that. I, I was trying to respond. I, I, I thought I'd heard part of your question being like how many people might be. Uh, yeah, I just wanted. I, I care about uh, when I think about problems. Sure. I think about scope and scale. And, and it sounds like if we're seeing 20 patients a week, at least the scope won't month. be huge. Sorry, I'm sorry, month won't be huge. So that uh, the 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 n number of patients won't be huge, which is actually good for us. Um, uh, to, uh, because it will affect a, a less gross number of patients. Dr. Marzuk, thank you for your report. As, as you know, I asked my standard question. Just to remind, uh, Dr. Magalong uh, uh, presented in your absence last month, and he reported his top three rank ordered concerns as number one, um, uh, safety, number two, EPIC slash Sapphire, and number three, specialty services. Do you have an amendment to your rank list order of concerns at this presentation today? Uh. So the same. Uh, safety is your number one concern. The, the electronic medical record is your second number of concern. And uh, uh, continuation, uh, the, the issues around specialty services is your third. Is that correct? Thank you very much. With that, thank you for your report. Um, uh, Dr. Ballard. Welcome, Dr. Ballard. Thank you. I will have to thank Dr. Hearn for um, actually running MedExec this past meeting since I was becoming an SDS EPIC trainer that day. <laughs> not quite sure what that means, but I'm working on it. And Dr. Ballard's report begins on page 158 for those following in the packet. And um, we voted on the credentials and privileges that you see in your packet. Uh, the um, special privileges that we presented have to do with the medical um, the emergency medicine department is now going to be privileged to do transesophageal echocardiograms. It's a practice that is growing uh, in usage across the nation, especially during um, cardiopulmonary co codes, so that they can assess the cardiac function during the code. Um, so we have some providers that have been trained in this practice, and they're going to be the first um, candidates for this privileging, and then we'll see how it goes in terms of the volume that they get and the ability for them to maintain the privileges. I will say that the process surrounding us getting these privileges put through was, I think, one of the best processes I've seen implemented in this hospital system in the last while, in that we were very um, resistant to accepting anything that was less than um, scrutinous of practices and maintaining good patient care. So I, I will I will say I was extremely pleased to see the way this all played out. And it was a multidisciplinary approach that included both cardiology and procedural docs and the emergency department. So it was really a nice thing to be a part of. Um, the professional services contracts were also approved. Uh, there was some more discussion about surge red. I think that that works moving forward and making small gains each each month when we um, have the reports come through. A lot of work to do, though. Um, the medical staff policies and the policies and procedures. There's um, 
a, a larger than normal amount of policies and procedures surrounding how we're actually merging medical staffs. And I have to echo thanks to Satira because she's just doing an amazing amount of extra work around merging these medical staffs. So she's, she's really pulling it together for us in ways that I couldn't possibly do myself. Um, but those uh, policies and procedures that are surrounding how to, to safely merge the medical staffs and what the expectations will be going forward, both in the short term and the long term, are a, a point of active discussions and a lot of those policies got put forth this, this month and voted on. Um, there were three departmental uh, reports, I believe uh, the details of which are in one of your exhibits, D1, for your perusal. I heard that they were um, compelling presentations, even though I wasn't there to witness them. And uh, a, a topic that came up both uh, apparently surrounding the medical exec meeting and in some of our chairs huddles is this idea of clinic no-show rates and sort of all the factors that contribute to it. Uh, it was Dr. Carey that said that she has personally been called by patients who were driving around looking for a parking space. and. At, at some point they give up and they say I can't make my appointment. So I think there was a, a robust discussion um, that's happened a couple of different settings now around what our plan is to improve the parking, especially on the core campuses of, um, of Highland to allow patients to actually get to their clinic appointments before we start scrutinizing the no-show rate as something that we don't have any responsibility in. Um, so that that's the final um, component of my report. And um, thank, thank you, Dr. Ballard, for your report. Trustees, questions for Dr. Ballard on the Highland Core report? Uh, Dr. Ballard, standard question. Last time you had a rank order list of your top concerns was number one, morale, number two, wellness, and number three, communication. Um, uh, can you give us your top three concerns as of today's presentation? So it, it seems that as we start getting really close to finalizing some of these huge projects that we've had um, ahead of us, like the unification of Oak Care and AHP and the merger of San Leandro and Highland, it, I, I think I keep hearing you know, concerns about methodology and still trust issues and I think that at some point and I, I wish I had the magic wand to sprinkle fairy dust to make it all better for everyone but I don't but at some point I think we need to decide how to move forward because we're going to have to one way or another I think we've walked down these roads far enough that there's no turning back now and I think that a lot of the turbulence that's happening around both of the processes and some of the behind-the-scenes negotiations and some of the, you know, not, I guess, not positively slanted um, actions that are happening are just going to undermine our ability to, make, to, to achieve success in the near future. So I don't, I don't know what word to put on that. But I do have concerns that we're all getting cold feet and there's a little bit of lack of, of joining together and really 
being willing to undertake these huge challenges as a team. Um, so I, you can give it a word if you like. I don't know what the word is, but I would make that one, two, and probably uh, wellness is still yeah, three. Yeah. I'd probably, for me, the way it's presented, I'd probably use the word trust. Perfect. Which, which you've, you've, you've noted in one of your prior reports, uh, I'd say two sessions ago. Um, so trust, trust, and wellness, I, I, I'll, I'll, if, if that's acceptable to you. Yours. It's acceptable. Okay. Thanks. Trustees, uh, with that, we'll close out uh, the Highland Core report from Dr. Kelly Ballard, and we'll, we'll end uh, with the uh, report from San Leandro Hospital. Uh, welcome, Dr. Ingenio. Thank you. Um, the report is there. I'll briefly go through the various items for you. Page 195 for those following in the packet. Um, Credentials and privileges, there are four initial appointments, seven reappointments, and seven resignations. Um, there were no issues there. Um, there were no, um, I don't believe there were any uh, non-position contracts for us to review. Um, the, uh, oh, the quality and outcomes, I, you know, I brought to the um, MEC the concept of me continuing to it end this meeting for a while on the enthusiasm or at least approval for now and the MEC felt strongly it was good to have someone from our uh, a local campus uh, frequenting these meetings and so they encouraged that from me at the moment. Other issues that were old issues that we had discussed were the collection ratios which we had concerns about. I don't know if you have that there and that's still a concern. Um, just looking at the, the San Leandro collection ratio, which should be probably one of the better ones in the system, and it looks like it's probably the worst one. And I don't know the details of that, but that was a concern. It's something that I think should be looked into. Everyone on the MEC felt that. I don't know if you see that grid there. Yes, on page 195 yeah. of the packet um, for whoever's, whomever's So that's following. something that... Uh, we felt strongly is, is a problem because in the past when you look at the payer mix, um, Medicare's number one, that should be pretty easy to collect um, if it's coded and billed correctly. Um, and that's been typically the, the highest uh, proportion of care at San Leandro just because of the demographic of the neighborhood. So, and, and that is very concerning to the, the MEC. Um, the acute rehab move um, that's undergoing seems to be going well. There were some some issues that still need to be hammered out in terms of rapid response and code blue because now it exists within the San Leandro Hospital building, yet the hospitalists who staff that are the ones from Alameda. So the hospitalists that are in house at San Leandro are not the same ones that are actually taking care of those patients. So that has to be worked out because the expectation is that those people, uh, those physicians and the ED physicians will be responding to these codes that are probably infrequent um, and it will likely do, deliver better care to these patients since it's available in the facility now. Um, but the logistics of that need to be worked out. And I think ultimately it sounds like the hospitalists will do do some kind of arrangement where the ones who are actually physically there will be taking care of those patients on the fourth floor as well. I don't, they're working that out. And uh, I, it's not an acrimonious discussion from what I understand, but there just needs to be clarity 
and it's mainly between the hospitals and the ED physicians. Um, there were still some serious concerns uh, from the emergency department with really long boarding times and wait times. Um, and I realize that this is nothing compared to the challenges at Highland, um, but it's something new for San Leandro. You know, patients never leaving the ED is, is a, it was a very uncommon problem, getting admitted and never making it to the floor. is now something that's happened a few times or more than a few times. And there was great concern by the, the medical physicians about that. Um, I think a lot of that, some of that, and maybe Dr. Jamaluddin can, Jamaluddin can comment, has to do with some of the psychiatric holes that are not being transferred over, that are absorbing beds, and then some of the bed closures that are still there um, in off hours. Um, the surgical times changed, but that's of no, that was just an efficiency thing. There seems to be no issues with that. And then uh, the Sapphire training, some location, some uh, sessions have been scheduled now locally there, which I think is good. Um, for that. Is that your report? That's the end of the report. Thank you, Dr. Ingenio. Trustees, questions I, for Dr. on Dr. Ingenio's report? Well, Trustee Hernandez. It, it's actually not a question for Dr. Or, or a it, it's, it's just a question in general, and maybe um, someone can help me understand <clears> this. So on this payment ratio, am I understanding correctly that only 18% of those patients we see were on Medicare? No, no, no. As a collection ratio, so I know. Like no, I know. Only it's we are collecting only eighteen percent of those patients' fees. No, what are we doing? Collection ratio is the amount of dollars that we collect based off of the charges that we bill to the payers, and it's uh, largely contingent on the contracts that you have, so the approved rates that you have with those payers, as well as what your charges are as an entity. Uh, one of the things that's uh, happening as we work to get ready for Sapphire and to improve our revenue cycle and the functioning of it is standardizing our charge master. So we have three different charge masters. To be clear, charge master is just a way that you set up charges mm -hmm. in the organization. They have no true bearing on what your costs are as an organization. It's a historical artifact in healthcare that's tough to explain, but it exists. Um, the reason why, there's several reasons why the collection ratio on balance uh, for San Leandro is less than what it is for uh, um, other parts of the organization. Some of the bigger drivers for that. So the collection ratio, the numerator is what you get back. Mm -hmm. The denominator is what you charge. Mm -hmm. The charges for San Leandro I believe, as a result of this work, have gone up because we standardize our charge master across the system. Charges for a more complicated uh, um, uh, place like Highland tend to be higher than a, a community hospital. So your denominator for the community hospital has gotten higher, mm -hmm. where the rate, even if the rate that what the, you got paid before was the same, mm -hmm. so your percentage would go down. Yeah. So that's a a logical sort of uh, uh, objective explanation for the collection ratio that doesn't necessarily, if you look at it from a lay perspective, you wouldn't, you would think that means you're not making as much money as you should be making, when it's really just a, a calculation type of thing. It's not, it's not that we're not collecting 
as much as we can expect to get from the peers for all of the work. And let me be clear, there is still work to be done there because, as you know, we're on Meditech at San Leandro, and Meditech uh, is a very archaic system. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that we have, and the one there, is even more archaic than the one we have at Alameda. Mm -hmm. uh, when we're on Sapphire, resulting in us having to do double entry a lot of times for mm -hmm. our um, uh, charges and the work that we do there, when we're on Sapphire, that will improve, which means the charge capture will improve which should lead to uh, uh, improved reimbursement, which is what we expect to happen. That is not the major driver, though, for why you see the collection ratio being what it is. And so what would be our target for right. those ratios? And a separate question. I really appreciate this table. Um, it feels like this should be in every single one of our reports so that we understand how the different sites are yeah. performing on this level, especially as we begin to think of ourselves as going to population health and sure. a capitated model? I think we, one, we should we should probably, uh, let me answer your first question in terms of what the target should yeah. be. Uh, it's tough to say because it's going to vary by peer, then it varies by the, the mix of the patients that you actually see. So I could say my target would be 16 or my target would be 20 or 25, depending on what those, the charge master does and who comes into the facility. Mm -hmm. But all of that is going to vary on a month-by-month -month basis as an organization. I think what, what we should expect, and this is the number that you do see in the Finance Committee reports, is when we do all of our um, uh, billing, when we look back for the month and say who came into the organization, what they received, uh, what services they received, what did we bill for, what percentage of that should we be collecting, that's a rolled-up number that you get for the entire system that is the basis on which now we do our income statement. That number, in terms of what we collect of that number, has been idle in between 98 to 101 or 102 percent uh, for the organization. That's the number that I say is probably more useful for you to look at as a barometer for how effectively the revenue cycle for the organization is working. These numbers just comprise so many other variables that it would be mm -hmm. tough for you to kind of really glean any sort of appreciation for what's happening as a result of them. And I think that's the case for members of the medical staff as well. I think it's just really challenging. What I would say is uh, for the, uh, uh, not just the Medicare, but even the commercial piece of it is, uh, in particular I would say for the commercial part of it is, uh, we actually get, in some commercial contracts, better rates for certain services here than we get there. Uh, because of two factors. Uh, here, I mean at Highland, because of two factors. Again, complexity of the services that are provided here and our ability to negotiate a rate structure that's more favorable. Uh, and then two, the need, uh, the perceived need from a pair of that particular location as a part of their network. Uh, the challenge we have for San Leandro in particular is it's two exits away from a set of facility that is a, uh, a, a um, a highly regarded uh, facility for which, uh, from a payer perspective, commercial payer perspective, there's a, a there's a bit more of a drive or demand or impetus to have that in your network. We have some ability to do that for San Leandro. It's our ability to negotiate rates uh, that are more favorable are going to be impacted by that. And and I would I would just I would just add Delbecker. I would I would add uh, to to Delbecker's point that. It's really also by the nature of the current framework and structure of San Leandro, which will change once we merge licenses. Mm -hmm. And so that will have an impact. And if you recall, part of that analysis of merging the licenses resulted in a pickup in revenues because of the adjustment that will happen in these collection ratios as a result of the mm -hmm. mix that will change. Can I make a comment on you know, why we did this? Um, why I brought this to this, because yeah. this is not my purview. But, you know, I've asked, and, and Mr. Fonseca has been very helpful. Um, You're a doc. 
about that because you know because of the financial challenges across the whole system, you know we we get reports um, about the whole system and and on a granular level that doesn't help us to say locally at San Leandro how are we doing are we maintaining our budget are we like doing what we're doing efficiently to not cost the system money at, at the local level and so we specifically asked and he gratefully provided granular information on the local facility to see how are we doing. And because the real concerns I think came out of the emergency department and some other docs who said that there aren't mechanisms for them to build certain things that they think they should be. And they had very significant coding concerns. So, but all, all of you, what was said is obviously totally appropriate. I mean, I run my own practice, so I understand all this. But you have to look at the individual percentages of payer mix. So, you know, there are all these payers here. And at Highland, you know, Medicare is a small sliver. I mean, we looked at this at the time of the merger. At San Leandro, Medicare is the big slice of the pie, right? And mainly because of our group, I think a lot of it, because of the, the retirees that we deal with. That should be a very easy number to follow, very easy. I mean, if your bill chargers are twice Medicare, you know exactly what your collection ratio should be. And you can look at that every month. We do that with our practice. So, it, and, and that, the turnaround for that billing and collection is two weeks. It's all electronic. There are no, you know, it all comes, it, goes and comes very rapidly. And so that is why when I saw this, I'm like, this is, I don't know what the bill of charges are in terms of percentage of Medicare, but that's a very easy thing to follow. And that would be the dominant income, I would suspect, at San Leandro. And that's why I brought this, this up. You mentioned, you, mentioned it last month when you were right. talking about so, that. But the concerns were, were really prompted this were the concerns about coding. Are we, some of the docs weren't able, felt that they weren't able to code the stuff that they needed to. Mm -hmm. And we're leaving, you know, charges on yeah. the table, which is, you know, crucial right now for the system to capture everything they can. And so that's where this all came from. So I thought it was interesting. I, I it's would appreciate agree with you. Yeah, I, I, I think it's great that you brought it up. And I think we, I say we will appreciate your, your interest in it. Obviously, I, I would say the complexities of this on the acute side versus an outpatient side are just uh, oh, a, completely a, a, a different. bit more. Yeah, yeah. But, but to your point, there are, there are some potentially actionable uh, um, elements of this that having an engaged uh, medical staff that are looking at and providing suggestions for uh, what what you see from your vantage point as opportunities for the organization is absolutely critical, and so I I, I hope what I said didn't come across as like that. No, it didn't. I, it, I mean, it came, and it comes from the MEC in yeah. that a lot of the MEC members are you know practitioners who run their practice, and they understand this perhaps on a better level than some of the other physicians, and the, and you know you can look at the you know you basically look at your top two or three payers, and you know what your bill charges are, and on a monthly basis we can really be active of this because otherwise we're dead you know and, it, yeah. and not only our practice it's a system yeah. obviously and so that's why we brought it up and it, mainly so we mm -hmm. could see is there something we can do locally to help improve this absolutely for the system that's the spirit as of physicians this working there right you know yeah. and then but these numbers you know not knowing what the denominators are exactly right. what you spoke it, it becomes a little difficult but they do seem very low yeah. <laughs> trustee it's 20 yeah. years trustee, trustee jensen um, that, that's a good point. And so the denominator would be just a, a number that's not going to be paid by any. It's just a charge, for example, for a um, endoscopy that is going to be one number, and none of none of the inpatient, outpatient insurance, 
private pay. Nobody's going to ever pay that, but that's what the bill charges. That, that's not totally true, actually, depending on, at least in our practice, depending on where the patient's coming from, some people will pay the bill charge. It's, it, well, no, so, so for us, uh, there are very few payers who actually pay us on a uh, charge basis. We get paid on per it's rare, but they do exist. Uh, Correct. I'm just saying for AHS, uh, we, we, based off of the payers that we have, which is predominantly Medicaid and Med Medicare, uh, we get um, uh, paid off of per diems and contracted rates, negotiated rates. We don't get, there's, there's only probably less than 5%, I would say, of what we get paid. That's a basis of charges. And, and rarely, but in some instances, uh, is, it, is it our full charge or some increment that's above our charge? It's, it's generally a percentage of that. Right, and, and I I understand a little bit about it, and, and in fact, I actually did rate setting with my first job out of college. So, and, and at that point, it was Medicare that was paying more, and now, as I, we all know, commercial insurers tend to pay more on individual, most individual procedures. But um, uh, my other question here is about, this one is about billed charges. Is that actually an invoice that's going to, for example, we have the alliance and 6% and 17% outpatient and inpatient. Are they actually getting invoices or bills or, or something mailed for each encounter, for each patient, and then um, 6 out of 100 are being paid? or that, so, so is that 6 out of 100? It's 6% it's of what is being billed is actually collected. So is there any streamlining we could do in terms of all of this billing activity that we know isn't going to be... Reimbursed? So it's not it's not a the billing activity that's not being reimbursed. It's the standardization of the charges across the system where the charges if, if the prevailing charge is a charge that is reimbursed at a higher rate when it's done somewhere else versus when it's done at a different place, you you have to factor all of that in. So I couldn't uh, it would we'd have to then go back and do different charge masters for different services to get those numbers to be closer to the bills being reflective of the charges. And when you set charges, you're setting the charges basically based off the fact that you know that you have multiple payers. So if I tried to set it based off of what I knew I would get right. from one payer, you could actually end up adversely affecting yourself on what you get from a different payer. My question is more about the administrative part of it, whether or not we are, if we're um, billing the alliance for, um, for outpatient Medi-Cal and we're receiving 6%, are we, is there one person in this organization that's spending a lot of time preparing bills that could be doing something else it, and because they're not, their time is not being well spent if we know that they're not going to get no, it's 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 a mix. So it's not it's not. I, I, I want to make sure I'm understanding your point. Where it's, it's not like let's say someone was billing a hundred bills and only six of them are getting paid. That's that's not what's happening. It's cut across all of them. And this is again, this is an aggregate of a bunch of different services. So it's not when you see an outpatient service, you got to look at all the different types of outpatient services that are happening. There's not one person dealing with it. The revenue cycle starts from the point of patient being checked in someone providing a service, someone doing a charge entry for that service all the way out to a billing. And in some cases that billing, if everything is clean, is a relatively uh, person, uh, um, a non-dependent process. Uh, if it is one that requires a fair amount of edits, then you have various individuals who might be involved in any number of that. So uh, what I want to stress again for this particular facility is we have a situation where in order to get our revenue cycle working under a construct where the clinical part is done under a different system than the billing part, we do a lot of work now. 
the move to Sapphire is actually in that direction, which is to cut out the duplicative work that then allows us to be a lot less or a lot more of a automated process that pulls things through. So that is already in the works. Trustee Banerjee. Um, so with the, when the acute rehab moves to um, San Leandro and the construction is complete, will the other kinds of like OR utilization, because they'll, like the third floor will get back its beds, so you'll have a higher volume you see in special yeah, Hopefully the plan is that half the third floor will reopen for acute care beds yeah. once the construction's done, which is winding down, I think, right now. I, I'm not sure when... I, Maybe Dr. Jamaldi, you could comment. Will those beds be available before the move? Those half, the half the floor potentially that went off to re. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's all dependent on. Remember, we're relicensing the space, right? And as we're going through the licensing process, that's what's going to dictate when we will have accessibility to those to those areas. And so, you know, we're we're, we're treating it all as one uh, process where we're licensing the facility because there there'll be mixed use. In those in that third floor specifically, where you'll have you know 15 beds that are med surge tele, and then the rest of it is rehab uh, space, therapy space, and then the entire fourth floor is all you know therapy or, or rehab, acute rehab space. So so it's all being you know managed and processed you know through our regulatory team and licensing team, and so that's the work. There's a there's a comprehensive work team that's working on all these issues, specifically the operational issues, just like Dr. Ingenio mentioned that. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that we need to consider that uh, once we relocate, we'll have to, you know, the, the workflows may have to be modified on how we're going to address some of those needs. Right, and I was just, uh, you know, we'll be having a pretty fraught um, budget uh, discussion later in the, in the board meeting, and as we are ramping up for, you know, what are some revenue-increasing measures, so if we, if when you get the license and the, and the, um, and it's complete, that could be one of those things where either, I don't know, cosmetic surgery or what, there was something where, that um, in one of Ishwari's um, um, presentations she had mentioned like some OR utilization and other kinds of urology or other specialty things that, that there might be an option and I hope I'm getting the specialties right here but there was some about like when the, when the closure that the extra closure that has happened so how do we ramp up for that so that when that happens so there's the prime that the staff is primed and ready to utilize right so so there's so there's several things and and, and I, I I believe I, I understand what you're asking and so uh, the relocation of the rehab itself is you know those are patients that have already exited the acute care setting, right? So right. the services have already been provided. <coughs> as far as the 15 additional beds, yeah. that's going to give us greater capacity to uh, treat patients either that are coming in from the ED that are being admitted to the facility for whatever services, uh, acute care services, and or additional capacity for the system as we're looking at oftentimes transferring right. patients from Back island, love. you know, from uh, island. Uh, right? Correct. You know, addressing maybe some of the, you know, the the uh, the demand that we have here at Highland that sometimes we can go ahead and leverage that you know, additional capacity. As far as uh, opportunities for, for growth and, and, and service lines and things of that nature, that, that's, again, that's exactly some of the conversations that we need to have. I mean, recognizing that once we have the rehab facility uh, open on the, on the fourth floor, uh, you know, what are there, uh, what services are there that we could look at uh, capitalizing on some of those synergies? And are there certain procedures that we can look at decompressing here at Highland 
that we could perform at San Leandro that would have synergies and leverage some of those services that would then free up some valuable space here at Highland for additional procedures or other procedures. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of that discussion, a lot of that work that needs to happen. Is that happening now? That's what I, I, I think what I'm trying to ask is that because these things take time, I just wanted to know that I'm given a situation, new lines, no, but the kind of backlog from Highland or others, like if there's a transfer, and things are those conversations happening now, or will they be happening later in no, summer? No, I mean all those when all those conversations are happening, happening now. now. Of course, I, I would certainly. I mean, the natural is orthopedics, right? Because you have rehab upstairs. So I would certainly encourage as soon as the facility is available for viewing, even not licensed, courting orthopedic surgeons, saying this is what we got upstairs. Mm -hmm. That's a big winner for the system in general. Doing those types of procedures in the operating room there. So. My suggestion. My, my, uh, a more specific question. Let, you know, the, the space is going to be licensed. You know, before, well before rehab comes over there, because rehab is going to wait theoretically until after the sapphire merge. At least that's my understanding, right? Until December before they come over, and so it should be licensed soon. Would those beds, those 15 beds, come online for just med surge beds? Well, that, that's the thing. That, time? that that's the thing. I mean, if 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 we are able to obtain our licensing prior to the move we can certainly operationalize the space. The thing is that right now, really the, the, the timing of both of those, uh, it, there's, there's not a whole lot of separation between when we anticipate licensing and when we're anticipating the move. So you're absolutely correct. It is something that we're looking at. Um, you know, we're moving, we're, we're planning our move of rehab post Epic Go Live, for sure, uh, uh, which we're looking, we're targeting at that November-ish timeframe. Uh, and the licensing, uh, based on the most recent schedule that I've seen, is also tracking right around that same time as well. So, uh, in fact, uh, based on some of the, 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 you know, the state has very specific guidelines and mandates on how quickly they need to process certain, you know, documents and licensing. And when we're looking at working off of those schedules uh, and our historical, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, our historical experience with uh, the state. Um, we're actually making sure and we're working really hard to do several things in parallel because we want to make sure we have all this done before December 31st because we have to be out of San Leandro by January 1. I mean, I'm sorry, out of Fairmont by January 1. So, so again, uh, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, uh, Dr. Ingenio, but it's, it's, I think that the timing of those is, is actually relatively close. Dr. Ingenio, thank you for your report. Um, a, a couple comments. Number one, thank you for inspiring dialogue. So that's good job. Number two, on the on the issue of you uh, continuing to have your voice at this committee, a, as you recall, uh, at the full board last month, uh, our board president uh, fully supported your continued presence. I, I, I believe that this body also supports uh, your your voice here, especially through uh, this navigation of, of this marriage which is occurring. So I, I, I think if it becomes redundant, um, that becomes a different question. But I think we, we should reassess that at the top of next year. So, so please continue to come. Um, I'll end by uh, reminding you of your rank list order of concerns, which were presented last time, which were number one, nurse staffing, number two, Epic slash Sapphire, number three, the merger. Do you have any adaptation to your rank list? No, no, and, and one and two sort of come together. Uh, I think, you know, the big concerns on the MEC about staffing at the time of the Epic merger. And I've stated that multiple times. Yes. Just because having experienced that before, um, I know that that can be problematic. And it, it's problematic for months. Yeah. 
that's so that's a big concern, especially with some of the more seasoned nurses we have. I'll put it that way. They may not be as computer savvy and have experience with it. I, I will actually contribute that, to that a little bit. I've, I, I'm uh, training as a specialist, training the specialist, and I am. Uh, amazed by the power of, of Epic. It's an extraordinarily powerful engine, and I similarly have concern amongst uh, our staff, our staff's ability to get up to speed. So we're, I think we'll have to continue to have this dialogue and try, try and strive to create an environment for success. Dr. Jay and I were just talking about this. I think I think this is a big, uh, big opportunity for us. So uh, once a, once more, uh, nurse staffing number one, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Epic, and number number next was the merger. Is that right? For your rank list? Yeah. Okay. With that, we will close out item D, the med staff reports. Um, well, we're going to be jumping around since we uh, couldn't open up in closed session. I'd like to go now to item B as in boy, the consent agenda. May I entertain a motion to uh, approve the consent agenda? So moved. Um, uh, I'll open up for dialogue. Item B, one minute. Item B, two, policies and procedures across the system. And number three, uh, medical staff related issues, which we're not, we've now migrated to consent agenda, approval of privileges from forms. Are there any issues of concern or dialogue or debate with regard to the consent agenda? Wow, that was easy. All, all in favor? <laughs> Opposed? Abstentions. With that, we will close out item B. And now we've gained some time back. That's, that's happened. Uh, we were not able to open with closed session. My apologies to the audience. Um, we, we typically start the, the, the session with closed session, but we didn't have a quorum. We, uh, closed session is something that we have to do. I think we better get this out of the way right now. So with that, I, 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 I move that we move into closed session item A right now. Just to recall for the audience, uh, closed session is used to discuss 1157 protected items and used to discuss confidential matters related to the medical staff accreditation and risk so if you are not directly related to one of these discussions we kindly ask you to return I think we can do this one quickly in about 10 minutes in about 10 or 15 minutes uh, welcome everyone back we have just come out of closed session this is again the June 27th QPSC uh, just to keep everyone apprised or more notes for myself when I listen to this podcast we have finished uh, closed session item a we uh, before closed session we closed out item B which was the consent agenda and we've already done item D the medical staff reports I'm going to de defer uh, the chair's report item C till the end if if possible uh, given trying to keep us on on time with that uh, we will open uh, uh, next into item E the SBU quality metric report for acute care and we always have a great team uh, who who is uh, coming to present to us um, just as a reminder is it all three that two um, so um, we're going to be hearing the acute SBU report. Uh, presume uh, 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 that the Board of Trustees has read your packet. Uh, we try to stay the principle of 25% presentation, 75% dialogue. It's a very well-written packet. And attention to the time. We've allocated 15 minutes to this section, if that's okay. So this is just for the acute SBU, and we'll, we'll be doing uh, throughput after this one. So with that, I'll open up. I'm going to look at each other and <laughs> <laughs> I'm Teresa Cooper, VP of Patient Care Services here at Finland. Actually, Dave, um, is Teresa's mic on? No. Thank you. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you. Um, so Lori's unable to make it today, sorry. Um, so we're going to cover for her. 
Um, so we are, um, for our um, observed expected length of stay, um, we are moving the me metrics towards a goal, but we're not that. Highland was um, the fallout this month, as you can see. XUT, um, I'm not sure that your mic is hot. Uh, I have to adjust it to a voice so she can talk. I can talk? Okay. There we go. Oh, no. there we go. Okay. Okay. So, um, for Highland, um, we are embedding the MDR rounds, and we are not only embedding them, we're changing the culture. They've been amazing. Um, uh, I urge you to uh, attend one. Um, so the MDRs are on all of the floors, and they include all of the services. Um, I think we believe we started surgery. Um, and we are going to actually pilot it in the ED as well. Um, we were at a recent meeting, and Dr. Besh said, it's Besh, he said, I love the MDRs. So it is a collaboration between the providers, nursing, um, and um, ancillary staff. It's just, it has transformed the throughput. Uh, and the nursing staff on the floors have just driven it and been amazing along with care management. I just want you to know that, um, I know you're gonna talk about throughput later, but it's really changed throughput. Um, there's a transparency and a communication that um, is happening. So we're, we're proud of that. Alameda? Oh, at Alameda, our, our, what I'm excited about is we started the red, yellow, and green uh, magnets on the patient locator boards on each of the units to promote our uh, awareness of length of stay. Um, the red, yellow, and green are the, the, for the current day, following day, or the two days respectively. And we're including the barriers on the whiteboards um, for, for a cue, a visual cue for all to see. So the median time um, from decision to admit at Highland, um, we still continue to struggle with that. We've done um, a great job. Um, I guarantee you that June will be much better. Um, just so you know, June um, has not been in red since the 11th of June. We've only been in red six times this month, so we should celebrate that. Uh, quality, um, I don't know if Tom here wants to add to this, but the QI, the QIP, um, 17 of the 20 measures we're on track for um, are on target. Um, and then um, down to the acute all day, excuse me, all cause 30 day readmissions. Veronica, you want to talk about yours first? For 30 day readmissions? Yeah. Well, Al Alameda and San Leandro have been on target, so. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and so Highland struggles a little bit. Um, Sheila's group um, um, and everyone else in that group is working really hard for that. Um, uh, we are going to uh, pilot something in the ED where we ask upon admission. Um, or excuse me, when someone checks into triage if they've uh, been admitted in the last 30 days. So um, and that will trigger a call um, and, and, and increase transparency to providers. I can, yeah, I can add to you. that uh, a little bit more. So um, uh, that, that question in triage has been rolled out and when, that, uh, when a patient is identified at triage as um, having been admitted within the last 30 days, then they're collaborating with both the physician team but also the care management and social worker um, in order to see if we can avoid a, an admission. And indeed, um, there was one patient um, earlier this week where uh, Dr. Simon um, uh, recognized that with the hope of this identification and, and triage uh, in order to see if we can get this patient directly to a sniff. And, and so that is great work, um, not only to uh, avoid the readmission itself, but the, you know these patients don't need to if they're not acute. Um, there is both safety as well as budgetary reasons to not have them in our acute care hospital. So um, in addition, uh, one of the um, analyses that we did over the past few months when we were looking at the median time from decision to admit to leaving the ED is um, when it was on the rise, why and 
uh, one of the things that we discovered is that the there's a population of patients that were that spent their entire admission in the ED, but their um, observed to expected length of stay was less than one. And so those patients were were truly observation level patients. And um, uh, uh, while Janet McInnes is not here, she is helping to start lead an effort to look at a clinical decision area in the ED to help um, uh, help rapidly turn over these um, lower acuity patients that really don't need uh, an admission to an acute care facility. So Felicia, to remind us, uh, the board or clarify, we currently do not have an observation status. Is that what you're saying? Not at the highland. Uh, on, on the highland campus. Yes. So, so this move would be to address that, which would act, actually have imp impact on payment and, and, and the like. Yeah. So okay. readmissions, payment. Mm -hmm. When we have epic, um, you, will you have to triage and ask people, or it will show up if it's a 30, if they show up at PDD within 30 days? Yeah, yes, it will be available. And in fact, it is available now. It was just adding that to the workflow. Mm -hmm. Um, HCAPs, Ronica? Well, we're doing a reset kind of for HCAPs. We introduced the iRound tool to our managers, and nurse leaders will now be taking over the patient experience committee to create more of a unit ownership. Um, we began a more detailed patient-friendly medication education sheets that's been really well received by patients and staff. And at Alameda, we continue to share patient comments at our physician committees, leadership committees, and our unit huddles. And we're doing the same here at Highland. Ladies, what's your take on both of those measures, uh, those interventions? How does it feel like it's impacting on the staff? You know, for me... Is it gelling with them? Yeah. Um, we are extremely lucky right now. Our inpatient nursing leadership is just amazing. Um, I was able to round on um, a couple right there on in your the floor <laughs> um, and on her floor the other day and she doesn't know this but I round on more patients than the one I was talking to and um, she is out there, her staff is out there and everyone was really happy. It felt really good. Awesome. Yeah. Veronica? Same? Oh, yes, same. Okay. That's I have a question about, sorry, no, of course. I have a question about the um, patient handouts on medications or follow-up care. Um, I'm assuming those are in multiple languages, so people will have access to information in the language, preferred language. Um, I ran into a really weird case in the Central Valley where um, the uh, valley has some folks who come from really remote parts of Mexico where they're not able to read or write. And I'm curious if we figured out pictures or guides of that sort. Have we done anything like yeah, that? Yeah, so our medication handout, um, and we only have it in English and Spanish now. It's a new one that oh. we just piloted. Okay. It has pictures, uh -huh. um, and it will, will be in many languages. Um, we're working. We just rolled it out, and um, the patients are, um, are responding. Have, yeah. And, and the second part to that is that for culturally competent care, we're always told, ask if you understand. It's not just telling. But are the nurses becoming more familiar with that simple but yet you know, quite profound step to take. What did I tell you? You know, what is the instruction? Uh, tell me what you heard so that yeah, you can I verify. We, yeah. I'm sorry. Repeat back, I believe. Teach back, yeah, yeah, we call it. And they, they, we role model to it. They, yeah, the managers ensure that the nurses are doing it. They document it, and it's, yeah, ensuring that the patient tell me what I, I just explained yeah. to you. Thanks. Check your understanding. Yep, great. Thank you. You're welcome. So the next... Sorry, I jumped ahead. Um, we are talking about um, 
HCAPS was the last item. The last one. Okay. Um, we, we sort of jumped over, um, did we jump over the hospital acquired infection? I think we Okay, so I just wanted to point out that um, um, Dr. Ellis has worked really hard. We have um, we're approved a nurse-driven uh, protocol for Foley catheter um, removal. It's been approved at Highland. It's final stages here at MEC. And we are rolling out um, two external female catheters, which we'll be training the staff oh, on. Nice. So that will help with that. Um, and then one thing we wanted to add is the rollout of um, team steps, and I don't know if Dr. Turnabeni wants to add to this. Um, we're going to be rolling out a joint plan of all three sites with team steps. Will you re refresh the board on that? Yeah, yeah so uh, team, team steps um, is a mod model of uh, communication and teamwork. It's a series of tools in order to improve clinical communication and teamwork. It comes out of the aviation industry uh, many years ago in order to address the, the risk associated with authoritarian structures in a cockpit. And so uh, the, the tools that are embedded in this program that's out of the AHRQ are really focused on uh, uh, communication, mutual support, teamwork, and situational monitoring. And so we had a group of 50 of us trained um, in March on Team Steps Train the Trainer, and we are in the process of rolling it out uh, at all of our acutes and also, I believe, also in John George. So um, we're in the educational modules right now, and then hopefully by the end of the calendar year, uh, we'll be moving into some of the tools that will be specific to each of the facilities. And so we uh, are starting here um, at Highland in the operating room and both at Alameda and San Leandro, we're going to be doing it on our med surge units as the rollout units and then we'll spread it from there. Excellent. We look forward to hearing yeah. more about that. That's actually very exciting. Mm -hmm. Any further presentation, ladies? I think she hit it. Um, as always, a great report, wonderful narrative. My request is, and probably a small oversight, the master dashboard wasn't actually included on this report uh, for the acute SBU. So it was a little bit hard to contact. So next time, if you don't mind, I, I know how that stuff happens. Um, but this is actually the end of our fiscal year. And as we're forecasting the next fiscal year, are, are what items, and maybe this is to Luis as well, what items do you plan to keep on, on the acute SBU dashboard, or are there going to be any changes? Um, the way that uh, we did this last year was once the True North metric dashboards for the system were finalized, we then met with the SBUs to try to find process metrics or sub-metrics to roll up to that, but we can change that philosophy, but that, that's the way that we've been operating. I, I think that's perfectly fine. I just I was ignorant of that process, so that, make, that makes perfect sense. Um, ladies, you know, uh, everyone knows we present, I'm going to try to end in standard format. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to rank order your list of concerns. Ronica, I'll remind you um, from your last report in March, your number one concern was CNA negotiations. Your number two was Sapphire Epic, and number three was patient experience. Can you update uh, this body on what your, yep. your rank list of concerns might be? My number one would be budget issues right now. Number two, still um, EPIC. And three, patient experience. 
the CNA negotiation says is it's is, still ongoing. It's but it, slowed it's a bit. In priority. Yep. Yes. Priority concern. Yes. Still a priority. Thank you very much, um, Teresa. Uh, at, at your March report, your number one concern was burnout. Your number two concern was the code red surge issue, and your number three was the epic sapphire issue. Can you rank list your concerns as of as of today? I still think that burnout and staff morale is my number one. Okay. We're, we're going to work really hard on that. Yes. Um, Epic, I'm feeling much better about. Awesome. Um, and you know, we're just we're going to make it happen as we do everything else. Um, and um, yeah, I think the I think I just want to sustain the the progress we've made in the surge. It, it, it feels really good. So would that be your number three? Three. Can you give us some insight as to why you're feeling better about Epic? Um, I think we really have a sense of, you know, we know what's ahead of us, and it's scary, but we, we know what's ahead of us now. The known um, knowns. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, mm -hmm. um, having that helps us prepare. Okay. I think everyone is starting to um, realize um, we've had some revenue um, meetings. Um, it, it's doable, and it's going to be great. Um, so it, it just feels like we're wrapping our arms around it. Awesome. Uh, thank you to you too, and and of course to Lori as well for the for the great work you did you do, um, uh, Luis. Um, I, I just wanted to I, I had also as part of the acute SBU wanted to let them finish their report based on the executive dashboard, but there was also as part of the package there was uh, a couple of slides that that I have up on the screen here. Uh, yes, I apologize. To, the emergency department staff at San Leandro Hospital. Correct, and this so this was. Uh, uh, Really, the intent was to kind of close the loop on, on a comment that was made on previous QPSCs, I believe, either Dr. Ingenio or maybe I think... Dr. Riconti. Yes, she uh, was, was reporting on behalf of Dr. Ingenio. But uh, in any case, we wanted to make sure that we, we, we shared and we clarified with, with the board. And so we've got a couple of slides here. Uh, Janet put this together. She's been working very closely with, obviously, her team, but Lori specifically at San Leandro. And so on, on her behalf, I'm going to go ahead and share the information with you all, what you have in your report. But... Bottom line, the upshot of the discussion, uh, the concern initially was that uh, there was this, this, there was a concern that uh, beds were being closed after a certain hour in the ED at San Leandro. And so, again, this is uh, just to kind of get you, get you back to, to that. And Janet, after reviewing and discussing and meeting with all of the team and the staff, uh, th there is no bed closure that occurs at any point in time. Uh, however, we do uh, flex based on, on the volume. And so, what we learned actually was she, when Janet went back and looked at this uh, operationally, the flexing wasn't happening very well. And so that in itself is a concern because then, you know, you're looking at, you know, inefficiencies and, 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 and you know, from a cost management perspective and how we're really efficiently staffing the area, that, that becomes a concern. Um, so this is just to give you a sense of the staffing of what we have. So this is truly with a schedule as it, as it stands uh, currently. And so this is being evaluated, it's being looked at to make sure that we are uh, managing to, to census. Uh, this is giving you a sense of the volume of patients. So as you can see, after midnight uh, until about 9, 10 a.m., there's really a, a dip in, 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 in number of patients visiting the ED. And so the average number of patients goes down significantly, you know, down to about one, two. Uh, one to two. Uh, and so when you look at that, uh, and then you look at the staffing that's in place, which I shared with you in this slide here, uh, you know, there, there's a disparity, and so this, I apologize, you really can't see it very well on the screen here, but it's in your packet, and what you can see is you, we, we tried to reflect the total uh, ED census or the ED visits for the entire day, broken down by shift, 
how many staff we had on the yellow lines as far as the staffing that we had in place during each one of those hours of the day uh, with the total number of patients that were being seen. And as you can see, uh, and, and recognizing that in the ED, uh, you have patient ratios just like you do in any of the other nursing units. And so uh, the ED ratio, uh, and again, that this may vary depending on the acuity of the patient of, that's presenting in the ED, but in the ED, you have a ratio of one to four. And so when you look at the number of staff that we have on average, five, uh, including your break nurse, uh, you have 4.5. In some, in some instances, we actually have more than that. We have seven, six to eight staff. And so, again, this is an opportunity for us to continue to manage and flex accordingly, uh, but we've got, in some cases, too many staff for the number of patients that are being treated. And so, uh, when you look at the total bed utilization, uh, and you see that we have a, um, our total capacity of 10 ICU, 39 uh, in, uh, inpatient, uh, or med-surge tele, uh, which we have in the, in the, in the uh, facility, uh, as you can see for the entire month of April, uh, we really never at any point in time, with the exception of the early in the month, we had their uh, total census of 47, but we're usually ranging in that, uh, again, fluctuation 30 to 40 range. So we have the capacity. Um, you know, there are times when we have issues, and so to Dr. Ingenio's point, there are times when you have uh, some patients that may board in the ED for a period of time, and that's largely driven by the fact that at San Leandro, most of well, actually, all of our beds are semi-private rooms, and so there may be sometimes gender issues or infection control issues or other variables that may prevent us from admitting into a patient room uh, when you only have one patient there. And so although we may have a bed, of a, you know, a, 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 a bed, an unoccupied bed, it's an unusable bed. And so that happens for, for a short period of time, but then that's obviously managed and mitigated, and then the patient goes up to the floor. Um, so... Again, in summary, um, you know, we have 13 beds in the ED. Those are open and, and managed 24-7. We have staff that covers based on historical volume and trend data. And we have the capability of flexing up as well as we have the capability of flexing down, as we should be doing based on those needs of the department. And so that's just wanted to, to kind of share that information and, and make, kind of close that loop to give you a sense of, of the work that's happening in the ED at San Leandro. Luis, thank you for that work and that slide set kind of summarizes. Dr. Ingenio, does this does that presentation comport now with the understanding of, of the general staff at San Leandro? And if not, uh, can you can you help us to uh, present this either at the MEC or invite uh, uh, Mr. Fonseca to come present this to the MEC? Sure, no, I'll be glad to present it to the MEC because obviously this is this board of directors really that the first time we've seen it. Um, you know, I think the concern, one of the concerns I had, I heard, and you know, I'm not in the ED daily, is that you flex down a nurse, you're never getting her back. <laughs> you know, they're not coming back if they're sent home. And that was something that was relayed to us. Um, and I don't know, if, is, it, is that something that's been easy to do, to get a nurse back when you need them? Um, and so that the understanding, and again, I'm going by what the ED physicians tell us that that they frequently have the inability to get patients through at night. Even though there aren't that many, when there are a lot of boarders, who's taking care of the patients when they're boarding from the ED? The ED nurses or the floor nurses? Yeah, 
No, it's, it's currently the it, when when that's when that situation occurs, it is the ED nurses that are caring for those patients, and they're in communication with the floor nurses to try and get that patient placed exactly. appropriately. So I think that's the concern that the, the ED doctor telling me that you know they, they and it may not be a patient that's even going to be admitted to San Leandro. It could be you know three people waiting to go to John George. The ED nurses, you know, granted, they're they all these patients that they have to sort of care for. Not sort of, they absolutely have to care for them. And then there's limited beds, even though the volume may not be much to get people through. So, you know, the bottom line is what's the, the wait time? What's the time to get to the floor? What's the, the left without being seen? Right? And those three numbers are up compared to before. So, you know, I mean, not just in the last month, but I mean, six months, or eight months ago. And so, that, those, how the EV guys can get that down to more acceptable levels. I, I think this is an excellent opportunity to interface between administration and the, and the, and the, and the MEC and the clinician. So uh, I'd, I'd, I'd ask you, Dr. Ingenio, to invite Mr. Fonseca so he could take those questions head on. Is that fair? Uh, no, absolutely. And, and, and I will just qualify that uh, that Dr. Avzali, who is the medical director for the ED, has been very involved. And so there is actually an active work group that is looking at exactly those three key metrics that Dr. Ingenio has mentioned. So absolutely, this is ongoing dialogue, and we'll be happy to continue that discussion at the MEC to, you know, to ensure that there's clarity and that everybody's on the same page and how we're continuing to improve our services. I wanted to make sure that I closed the loop with this body as it, something that came up a couple months ago and wanted to let you know that we're actively looking at it. This is the data that we've, we've seen, and we're continuing to move forward to ensure that we have appropriate coverage at all times. That intent and effort is greatly appreciated. So with that, we will close out item E. We will move into item F. I'm running about five to ten behind. This is a really important presentation. This is uh, the status of throughput initiatives in the system. Um, Sheila Lizwa, the VP of Care Management, and Dr. Tornabaini are listed as, as the presenters. A couple of uh, uh, reminders, of course, uh, which are uh, first, presume your board has read the packet. Uh, we, we try to stick to the principle of 25% presentation, 75% uh, uh, dialogue, and attention to time. We've allocated 15 minutes to this. Uh, we're running a little bit behind, so whatever you can gain us back would be okay. great, not withholding any dialogues. Okay, not withholding dialogues. Yes. Okay. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Did I go the wrong direction? Yes. The other way. The other way. Okay. All right. My apologies. All right. This so is page 212 of the packet for those who oh, are following. Into the mic? Yes. Yes, please. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for allowing me to um, present today. I'm Sheila Lizewa, uh, Vice President of Care Management, and uh, Felicia Tornabini will be presenting uh, with me. Okay. So today we're going to go over... Um, uh, in reference to throughput, um, some of our activities uh, directly related to care management that has had an impact on throughput over, I would say, actually, I consider it a journey because um, this, these are a list of activities that have occurred over the last um, two years. So we're going to talk about community engagement and partnership, utilization management, financial impact, opportunities um, that continue, and future state. Okay, so the care management transformation um, actually started uh, three years ago, and the three major uh, components of the transformation included um, uh, people, skills, uh, looking at revision of job descriptions, um, having um, the teams work at the top of their license, engaging with the union, um, with union negotiations that ended in 2018, uh, putting in tools and infrastructure system-wide um, to manage, 
uh, tools such as um, Allscripts, which we adopted in November, um, working much more closely with our community partners, other EMR uh, document cha changes, as well as MIDAS and metric development, and then essentially the culture of accountability. So the first item, um, which, ha which has had a direct impact on our throughput initiative, and this is a metric that we have um, monitored since our implementation of our post-acute uh, referral module. And what this metric is showing is that when we refer um, to a skilled nursing facility, it allows us to track how quickly we're able to place a patient in the community. So here you can see with Highland, we started um, uh, at, at the initial implementation, which was in November, we were at three days, and we have dropped that metric down to 17 hours. So Alameda and San Leandro started um, much lower, and they continue to be at um, a good number. Sheila, repeat yes. that number, please, <laughs> for Highland. For Highland. For emphasis. <laughs> okay, three days and five hours, and we're down to 17 hours. And so, to be clear, though, yes, it, these are these are patients who are on the floor who are occupying a bed who would otherwise that could otherwise be used for a patient to transfer from ED. That's right. They're waiting for an accepting skilled facility to the next level of care. Okay. Okay. So the, the next uh, is our um, uh, initiative on transportation. Uh, we had a 73% reduction in transport costs via our partnership with Lyft and Royal. So as you can see here, uh, with our Lyft partnership, it's it was much more cost effective with um, taxi service. Um, patients could, it was a three to five minute arrival time. Uh, we did show uh, the ambulatory appointments um, had an improvement, and of course we had greater uh, staff accountability. So in terms of our royal partnership with, our, with ambulance, we have achieved our arrival goal of 90%, and we've had a better opportunity to screen for Medi-Cal and to provide savings to the organization um, for the health plan and holding them accountable for the logis logistic care partnership. Okay, next slide. Um, our transfer center, so the increased use of inbound transfers. Please go ahead. Okay. So for the, the goal of the transfer center, and I believe you might have gotten the transfer center presentation a few months ago, so we won't go into great deal on this, but. The goal of the transfer center is to utilize all of our acute care beds throughout the system and to try and keep our specialty services within AHS as much as we can. So over the past year, we have had increased hours of coverage. <coughs> and then also, we're utilizing um, our transfer center much more. Um, of note, um, in recent months, we, on average, transfer to, from Highland to Alameda about 55 to 60 a month. In the last three months, from Highland to San Leandro, uh, we, our baseline was around 12 per month, and we're, we're up around um, 18, 19, 20 now. Um, and so we're starting to, uh, we're getting actually a great pull culture from San Leandro Hospital that's also helping to transfer out um, some of our patients from, from Highland to, to San Leandro. And then uh, conversely, the, the transfer center also handles uh, the transfers from Alameda and San Leandro Hospital back inward to Highland, and uh, that's been going quite well. We're working on uh, and have been working on an escalation process because we, we want to make sure that we get uh, patients from Alameda and San Leandro who need the, a higher level of care due to specialty services here to Highland. Okay. Okay, avoidable days. We've had a lot of discussion around um, the tracking of avoidable days. And this is um, a new process that we put in place over the last um, year to year and a half. 
And we have the ability now to have more transparency on why patients are staying um, in the inpatient and what the um, causes and attributions are. So this is a distribution for the month of May, um, system-wide. And we put some um, dollars that are attached to the avoidable days. So as you can see here with Highland, um, it represents the majority of our avoidable day opportunity. Um, we do have a higher uh, number of patients. However, we have significant placement barriers um, at Highland Hospital. And we will talk about that in a little bit more. So in the next slide is the breakout of um, our avoidable day attributions. Um, department attributions represents about 8%. Placement barriers, 60%. Patient family, external barriers. And we qualify external barriers, such as our ability to get authorization from health plans, um, issues with DME delivery. So those are some of the examples. And then physician-related barriers where uh, we have potentially avoidable admissions or where a patient doesn't meet medical necessity for an inpatient stay and we're not getting reimbursed by the payer. So our action item to address um, some of our placement issues, we do have work groups um, that we are putting in place. Um, and each, bar each barrier has um, identified uh, strategies that we will put in place over the next 30 to 60 days. So these are just some of the reasons why a patient would stay um, inpatient when we're not able to discharge. So under placement, um, our major uh, contributing factors, homelessness, um, behavioral health uh, plays a, a major factor. Um, under external, um, I did specify that guardianship, conservator, uh, significant challenges for us. Physician, it's medical necessity, um, no admission criteria, delays in surgery, and then patient families that are uh, refusing a treatment plan or they have um, uh, needs that we cannot meet in the inpatient setting. So under UM and finances, so let me go quickly there. So not only um, in care management throughput, um, it's not only about discharging patients, but it's also about ensuring that the hospital is uh, reimbursed uh, for um, our hospital days. Our claims on hold, uh, again, has been a challenge over the last several years, and I'm really happy to report, as you can see here in 2019, um, our goal for the EPIC cutover was set at $3 million, and as of May, we have um, achieved well under a million in terms of backlog claims. So significant improvement in our utilization management process. So what are some of our um, continued challenges? For post-acute placement, custodial beds, um, conservatorship, uh, the homeless population has presented significant challenges with um, the passing of SB 1152. Um, placing patients in dialysis has also been um, challenging with behavioral health and homelessness. And then just overall finding um, resources to place our behavioral health uh, patients and substance use disorder access. Um, other challenges, um, uh, managing staff productivity, uh, building and continuing to work on staff competency, and then also uh, physician care management communication, so being much more proactive with our um, attendings. Um, Intra-system barriers, we're looking at um, some of our challenges with the transfer center, with subspecialties. I don't know, Felicia, if you wanted to comment um, anything sure. further on uh, that. With respect to communication, uh, while sometimes it can be a barrier to connect staff to the to the transfer center because everyone is busy, one of the things I appreciate uh, the work that Ronica has been doing 
on this um, with the hospitalist and Dr. Solani at um, Alameda Hospital is to start scheduling um, routine check-in time so that the calls are not coming at scattered times during the day. Um, the, the bed availability is uh, sometimes not completely clear on a day-to-day -day basis. However, this will be easily addressed in, in Sapphire um, after go-live. And um, of course, the subspecialty services are not available at all of our campuses. And that's always an opportunity to look at um, and speaks to some of our uh, conversation earlier about um, services at different campuses. And um, we're, we're actually coming into a launch of transferring higher acuity patients to Alameda and San Leandro. We wanted to be very clear about the inclusion and exclusion criteria because we would never um, transfer a patient who was not stable. However, there's some patients that could end up in an uh, ICU bed at Alameda and San Leandro and don't have to wait here in our emergency department. And so we have now developed those inclusion and exclusion criteria and we'll hopefully be piloting those um, sometime this summer. Okay. And as we look um, forward to the future, which is actually uh, uh, today, uh, <laughs> Sapphire implementation, um, we're looking at that at September 28th, which will further um, improve our documentation, communication, and data. Um, we are continuing to explore our post-acute placement options with the county and other community uh, relationships, um, looking at better linkage uh, with our behavioral health and substance use team here at Highland. Uh, we're working to improve our outpatient care to decrease preventable admissions, um, other innovative approaches to um, transportation, and we're looking at expanding the transfer center and also um, increasing our staffing resources um, for the weekend. So before I end, I do want to um, acknowledge the medical staff, uh, nursing, the executive team, including our HR business partners. Um, this has been, uh, I would say, this throughput initiative has had a significant impact on um, the care management department and a lot of our improvements would not have occurred without the support of all of those that I've acknowledged. Thank you. Thank you for your report. Trustees, questions? Uh, Trustee Jensen. Um, thank you. That was really a, a, a very well done report and I appreciate all the data and, and I think that it's it's clear, it, it clarifies a lot of the information that we've had before, but um, I, and, and all the work that you're doing on this, on, on making the beds available especially, is, is really critical. My question is regarding the placement, the 60% barrier reason by category, and um, I, I know that our um, post-acute is very highly, we have a high occupancy occupancy in our post-acute in this system. So is the barrier, and, and I, I imagine that we're not able to often transport or transfer to the post-acute facilities in AHS. So these are, my question is, are these barriers, the SNP bed is not available somewhere else in the county or, or the patient is making a choice about the SNP bed? Is that, how does that work and what's the barrier exactly? I would say it's both. We, the community is not willing to accept um, patients and we also have capacity in our internal, in our internal SNP. And generally it's because the payer, the payer source is a challenge as well as a condition of the patient. For example, sitter use is, is one barrier for us. So we have to manage the appropriate use of sitters and then also the needs of the patient. 
So if the patient has issues of capacity, uh, cognitive impairment, then that will delay our ability to place the patient. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Trustees, any other questions? Sheila, do you mind going back to the first avoidable days slide? Yeah, the pie chart. Keep, Which one? Keep, keep coming back. Okay. Keep coming. Keep. One more. Is that the one? Or you one more. There we go. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 this was a very poignant slide for me. I'm. I actually, unfortunately, I get excited about slides sometimes, but I'm excited about this slide because <laughs> it's such powerful data. Mm -hmm. um, and and why, why I think this is powerful data are for the following reasons. One, this data sort of sits at the center of, of our, in my opinion, our highest strategic concern, which is quality. Because avoidable days relates to all these components of quality that we talk about. It relates to timeliness. It relates to efficacy. It relates to efficiency. It relates to patient-centeredness. And therefore, I think this is an extremely powerful number. The second th reason I think this is really important, this sits at the interface between finance and quality. You see 666 days there divided by 2.3 million. We're losing about approximately, based on this calculation, about 3,500 bucks a day per avoidable day. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't know what the trend line is here, but let's call it two million a month. We're talking about a potential impact of $24 million. So this is, the, again, the interface between quality and finance, which is something I really care deeply about. Third, this relates to one of our primary strategic issues, which is throughput through, through our organization. And fourth, uh, this is a real number for all of us, which it's, it's, not, it's not an adjusted index or what have you. It's a real number, how many days we are wasting. So I, I find this to be a super important uh, empiric for us. And uh, you'll hear me say this again as we move into voting for True North metrics. I find this to be an extraordinary important measure. So I applaud your team's very hard work to get this kind of data. This is hard data to get. Both of these, actually, because even the other one, Sometimes we just think, oh, it's all homeless, and it's like so many mm -hmm. uh, intersecting factors and things. So it really helps to know there are all of these. It's, sometimes it's physicians, sometimes it's all of that. So and they all compound. So. Uh, Sheila, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. And I'm going to end as I end with everyone. Can you please rank list in order your top concerns for, from uh, your care management perspective? Um, I would say number one, um, our barriers to placing patients in the community is, is our top and having the resources to do it, whether it's internal or external, would be my, would be my first concern. Um, uh, I would say staff morale. Is number two? Yes. Excellent. Do you have a number three? You don't have to. Um, I would say the upcoming um, EPIC implementation. Got it. Thank you for that You're excellent welcome. report. Great work. With that, we close out item F. We will move into item G. I know the audience is accumulating. My apologies. We're probably running plus five to ten minutes, but uh, I'll try to move things along. We're, we're going to item G, which is the patient safety and regulatory affairs. Um, we've allocated five minutes to this. I'll say that this, this uh, body had in closed session discussion on many of these items related here. Uh, this includes uh, uh, a report um, of 
uh, about eight uh, anonymous reports to the Joint Commission. We've had discussion about that. There, there are concerns of safety uh, in, the, in, in the organization, obviously, which has. Our, our chief medical officer made a very nice comment in, in closed session. I'd like him to kind of repeat that uh, for the open mic, which relates to the patient safety and regulatory affairs. Dr. J. So uh, as, uh, as it relates to patient safety, you know, we see this increase in, uh, uh, in this anonymous reporting. Uh, the, the, the important thing is that most of this reporting were already reported to the regulatory agency that, or the relevant re regulatory agency, that's number one. Number two, some of these reports were not substantiated uh, or others, some were not escalated through the proper uh, leadership at the, at the front line. Uh, the important thing is, uh, as, as we go through this journey, our safety indices have been improving steadily. Uh, throughout at the system level, and our uh, uh, insurers, uh, which is better, our, our uh, 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 premium has decreased because of, of improvement in safety. Um, uh, there, there is uh, the score report that was also brought up about uh, the staff perception of safety and perception of teamwork. We are going to have a systematic uh, approach towards this in order to improve teamwork. You heard earlier a little bit about team steps, but you'll hear more about this. And uh, uh, we are currently uh, closing the engagement survey from the HR. Both surveys, you know, we had to do them, unfortunately, close to each other's. But once we have the survey, we will have also a systematic approach towards our approach to quality. Uh, how we are going to engage a teamwork approach into quality with, with Using uh, within uh, like uh, tools that are uh, that, uh, that are uh, substantiated and that are proven to be effective in healthcare. Thank you, Dr. J. Trustees, any further comments on this section, patient safety and regulatory affairs? I'll note for everyone, just to remind everyone on the public mic, uh, included within this packet on, on, on page 235 were the, re were the results of our recent score survey, uh, 3,476 respondents to that. That is included within this packet. To high, uh, the, the, these data are not lost on this committee. And, and some of those which, re, which probably relate to our whole, uh, our whole climate and culture with regard to safety and quality include some items which stand out. So, so uh, of those approximately 3,500 respondents, uh, we, Alameda Health System uh, hit a fourth percentile on safety climate, fourth percentile. We hit a third percentile on personal burnout. We, we, we hit a, a seventh uh, percentile on burnout climate. These are very, very important data, uh, and I'm sure relate to everything that we discuss here. It's not lost on our senior administration. Uh, it's not lost, certainly, uh, at the board level. And, and, and I'll say these, these are important data to leverage in all the future ongoing dialogues we have with regards to quality. And I want those to, who have read the packet to know that this is not being ignored, and it will be addressed. Um, um, any further comments from the trustees? Thank you. With that, we will close item G and we will move into item H. This is an approved action item. This is the TNM dashboard for quality. As, as you know, 
uh, we've all been, uh, we've uh, spent the last, uh, we spent part of our retreat, we spent the last two meetings revising and forecasting our true north metric dashboard. Uh, for those in the room who are here, we enter a new fiscal year on 1 July and we set a dashboard of true north metrics, the, the, what we call the big board. And we, we, we've we had a discussion about those items led by uh, RVP quality, uh, uh, Dr. Hussein, and I'm going to open this up for dialogue uh, with regard to comments on any of the items which are on this. Can I get a motion to approve the proposal? So moved. A second? Second. Um, so uh, for me, I, I, I think we had a long discussion about those items. Um, uh, it was very timely for Sheila to, uh, and Felicia to give that report. For me, I, I, I find the, the avoidable days to be a profound metric. And, and as it relates to quality, as it relates to finance, uh, and, and I, I want to have the dialogue now on the appropriateness of that piece of data for this particular dashboard. So can, can I ask before we uh, discuss about our ability to have uh, contemporaneous, uh, veracious data about about the avoidable days? This uh, question be addressed uh, maybe to Tanvir or Sheila. Like I know that you presented data, but I don't know if we can present this data on a monthly basis in, in a very uh, accurate way. Yes, we it, the the way that it's currently set up, we can we can present the data daily, monthly, weekly. Wow. Yes. Okay. Yes, it's something that we track and audit every day. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. I apologize to interrupt. Uh, no, of course. No, no interruption. Trustees? So I have a question. Um, I'd like to know if at some point, once we have um, EPIC in place, we can't do it every month, but it feels like there should be a time of year when we look at this data by ethnicity, gender, all the SOGI data, real data, right? And it adds a lot of complexity to do that. That's why I'm saying it can't be done every month, but at some point, if we're gonna look at health disparities or health inequities, we should be looking at this data, some of it, by those additional layers. And so if there's some way for us to have a time of the year when we do that, we can't do it every month, but I'm just asking for the appropriate um, lens on each of these items to include real and SOGI data. Can, can I just request clarification? Okay. So, uh, thank you. Um, so what, what we are working on that was sort of pursuant to prior conversations was, uh, I think aligned with what you're saying, but I don't know. We're, we're creating a report card, as it were, that would include a combination of sort of qualitative and quantitative uh, metrics around work that we're doing in both health equity and um, um, sort of diversity and inclusion uh, efforts, which are more on the labor side of the house. Mm -hmm. uh, that work is underway. It's not yet uh, formalized or finalized, but we do intend to bring it back to the board. Uh, the, the thought was that um, that would be something that we'd look at. I think we were proposing uh, twice a year uh, uh, for the board's uh, sort of more deeper review and would likely include the data that's in the dashboard, some elements of it that lend themselves to our ability to track that way, but also things that are not on the dashboard that uh, go beyond that, that speak to efforts, initiatives, far, you know, long-range plans, that, that kind of piece. So, so 
wasn't necessarily intended to um, to become a part of the dashboard because we felt like that would become a little bit more um, cumbersome to do, but mm -hmm. but might be better as this type of standalone. Agreed. And, okay. and all I'm saying is that some of these items I hope to see on that. Um, Scorecard. Understood. Because for me, when I look at some of these, I'll just give an example. I think HCAPS is one where I would like to know how is our facility being perceived by those different groups, right? Sure. So that we can just ask ourselves is it a different experience if you happen to be, you know, a different ethnicity? Based off of the people who are responding. So I, uh, I will I'll, I'll certainly. Um, um, Make sure I'm, I'm trying to get Tangerine's eyes. Sorry, uh, but <laughs> I'll make sure that as we continue that work, uh, that what we bring back to you is uh, done with an eye towards looking at which of these we, uh, I think we have the capability of doing, and could give you some sort of actionable intelligence around it. So, so if we could, we'll, we'll bring that back to you. I think we're probably about maybe a month or two out on finalizing that, and we'll just do that with that in mind. Thank you. Dr. J. Uh, I just want to say that uh, in the in the EPIC uh, structure, the social determinants are parts of the documentation process. Uh, so uh, we will have the ability uh, to, to have more uh, intelligence about this, but there is a, a very important fields related to this, which is uh, uh, artificial intelligence algorithm that gives uh, the health system uh, more uh, ability to to prioritize healthcare actions. Uh, I mean, we are using some tools now that helps certain algorithm, but we, we, in the future state, uh, that that will become a much uh, capable uh, possibility. So we can do an assessment after the go live and try to link those those uh, uh, social determinants with certain outcomes. Thank you. Thank you. So given this dialogue and the consideration of um, uh, avoidable days and in the spirit of debate and dialogue, this question is directed to four people, my CEO, our COO, our CMO, and our VP quality. Is there a reason to not put avoidable days on the TNM dashboard? Um, no, uh, the one thing that we'll have to think through is, um, and I don't know the, I can't speak to the process, but as we do a better job of data capture, that is, the more critically we examine days to identify if they're avoidable, that itself may increase the number of avoidable days. I.e., if you're not, if you don't have a process, and you implement a process and you refine it to capture more, your number may increase, so we'll just have to be thoughtful about our target. So that's not a reason not to do it, it's just we should probably be thoughtful about how to meaningfully target set around it. Sir. Uh, thank you for the question, and I uh, echo uh, Dr. Hussein's comment, but I would also add to that, um, um, you know, we put uh, metrics on the dashboard not just to uh, report them, but to improve them. Right. And, and we set targets based off of sort of a realistic improvement that we can make in, in this space, obviously, uh, while there is a, a substantial and I think a laudable amount of internal work that we're doing to address this matter, so much of it lives outside of our control that when we're trying to set a target, I worry that there may be a, a frustration with maybe non-movement, the, uh, the lack of movement or the target being something that is um, because by virtue of the fact that we can't control so much of it, being something that seems underwhelming. Okay. But if we put it too high, then you're just going to see underperformance that's based off of things being beyond our control. So. Okay. 
That's what I would, I would caution. Uh, I, I'm as uh, Trustee Hernandez and I spoke. We're both from the Drucker School. You're not measuring it. You're not managing it. So I, I, I would argue first, first step on the journey. If, if that is that acceptable to the trustees, any debate on the trustees among this? Um, I think that's true. Uh, no debate, and I think that's that's fine. I would like to see something. I appreciated this report, and I think that we should see this regularly, whether it be on the T, T, TNM. TNM or somewhere else. What I also um, would like to see on the TNM or somewhere else and see more regularly is the score report, mm. which really highlights how um, how our our people in the organization feel about the culture of safety. And uh, I, I, I think the score data is important, but it's not regularly data, right. regular data. So with this, I'd, I'd like to entertain a new motion to accept the proposed um, uh, 11 items, right, Tinder? 11 items. Yes, it was 13 last year. 11 items plus the avoidable days. I will, uh, I'll modify my motion to include the item. Okay. And second? All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Abstentions? The motion carries. Uh, Dr. Hussain, we have a new dashboard. Thank you. Mm -hmm. With that, we will close out item H. Uh, the True North Metric Dashboard Review uh, is, is in your packet. This is a standing report. It is, uh, it is available to all. I'm going to defer that one in the interest of going towards time. Item J is the planning calendar and issue tracking. That is in the packet. I will note, note an amendment. Uh, this is all for our, all our CAOs. We are split, uh, uh, behavioral health SBU and uh, post-acute have historically been linked and it becomes a little bit problematic. We're spreading that out. So now there are four uh, SBUs, AMP, uh, acute, post-acute and behavioral health, they each get their own month. So now we're moving to a Q4 instead of a Q every third month cycle. Is that acceptable to everyone? And and to the board members, uh, I'll say, remember, uh, as we forecast the year, I've tried to forecast the year, you can always make sub suggestions for, for ad hoc reports. So with that, we'll close item J. And I'm actually going to go back to item C, which is the chair's report. And I'm going to do this uh, very quickly. Um, for those who are in the audience and those who come here, we, uh, our chair's report is utilized to discuss an article uh, of, of interest to what we do here. And, uh, and uh, I chose one. It's in the packet. And uh, I'll, I'll give a brief intro to it. And then we probably don't have a ton of time to discuss, but it's there for everyone's reading. So as everyone in this organization, from support staff to nurse to doc to CEO knows, our financial challenges are profound and they pose an existential threat to our survival. This is an all-hands moment, all-hands-on-deck moment for us. So no contribution and no idea is too small, even if it comes from the lowly QPSC chair. <laughs> I am of the belief uh, that finance exists to be in service to quality, and that quality should be overtly embedded into the standard work of how we make decisions. So last month's article was on how a system might begin the process of quantifying the impact of poor quality. Uh, to quote that article, quality is not a thing, it is the thing. Um, today's article in that vein is from the Harvard Business Review. It's called How Not to Cut Healthcare Costs. I think it's a super interesting read. Uh, it's included in your packet. It's available for the, for the public to read. We don't have a lot of time to dialogue on it, but I would beseech you to, to take a look at this article and see how these ideas can help us 
frame uh, some of the decisions we make in this organization and how we see things. Trustees, any comments? I had read that before. It's an excellent article. I it, do encourage everyone to look at it. it, it it's a very good article, and uh, it, it doesn't necessarily provide the answers, but it provides questions mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as, a, as a good article does. Uh, and uh, I, I'd ask if we do some of the things included in that article. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, that's, that, that was my takeaway, too, like looking at those, um, the different elements that as we kind of uh, try to merge our mish margin with the mission and to see where it, uh, are we falling into the pitfalls that are identified over here or the internal conversations at the level yeah. to see. I encourage everyone in the room to take a look at that article. Uh, with that, we will close item C. We will end with council. Um, this is item K, legal counsel's report. Yes, the uh, committee met in closed session and considered the count, <coughs> excuse me, the credential report to meet the medical staffs and approved credentials privileges for those qualified practitioners recommended by the medical staffs. Thank and you, Council. Committee took no other action. We took no other action. With that, we end at plus 90 seconds. My apologies <laughs> for that time. That ends QPSC. Thank you.